Well, Scrabble, uh, not to be confused with Scrapple. Uh, how many of you like Scrapple? Scrapple as in eating. Uh, how many have played Scrabble? That's going to make this message a lot easier. So I don't even have to do the message because all I was going to try to do is persuade you to play Scrabble and to be better at it. That's it. Want me to just pray, go home? <laughs> we've taken the offering, we've sang songs, I mean, you know. Well, maybe you're thinking, uh, okay, what, what does playing Scrabble or being a better Scrabble player have to do with anything that makes sense or that's practical to life? Um, I want you to think about what is the essence of the game of Scrabble. Okay, you, you get your letters, you pick them, you don't know what they are, you put them on your stick and then you turn them over and you look. And you examine your letters trying to form words that you can lay down on the board, but you're trying to form the most valuable words that you possibly can. You're looking at your letters and like if you get the Q, it's worth 10 points and you're trying to form a word that has a Q in it, and then you're trying to place it on the board where it's going to be the most valuable. It might be triple word, score, something like that. So again, let's, let's trace this back. So you're, you're taking your words, and these are words you already possess. These are based on your experiences and learnings in life. You have accumulated learnings and experiences in life. Now you're going to translate those into words that you hope will be very valuable words, you lay them out for people. And then the second part of the game, of course, is that others take their most valuable words they can put together and try intentionally to connect with you and your words. So it's a communication game, and it's a communication game with the target of connecting, connecting with others. And when you really consider this, um, it's, it's the thing of life. Um, many people, many people struggle. They're unhappy. They're lonely. Uh, they feel confused. They, they, they have struggles with self-esteem, often because of their inability to connect. It's not their inability to talk. How many know there's a big difference between talking and connecting? Can I just see your hands? There are people that can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. But rather than connect, they often cause people to throw up barriers or they almost repulse connection. So there's a difference between communicating and connecting. So why is, why is this so valuable? Why, why is connecting such a valuable thing? There's a Harvard study uh, was taken over a 72-year period. And uh, they came to this conclusion, what really makes human beings happy, the study's longtime director, George Vine, answered, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. So here they are studying happiness. What is, it that, what is the one thing that really makes human beings happy? And they're saying, it's your relationships. It's your relationships with other people. You've heard me say it before. Your career can be going good. Your economic situation can be going good. Your health can be going good. But if your relationships are not going good, you're not going to be happy. But let me expand this a little bit. Why is it that we are so relationally sensitive, dependent beings? I mean, where, where does this come from? Can science give us an answer to this? Can science show why it is biochemically, evolutionary-wise, we have become such relationally uh, dependent beings? And there is no answer. Science gives no answer at all. But the Bible does. 
The Bible says that, that we are created by a relational creator, that he defines himself in terms such as love, that he is love personified. Because he is relational, he has created us with the same capacity to enjoy and experience life that he himself has. The greatest gift that the creator could give to both angels and humans is this capacity that he himself has to experience life in a very sophisticated level. And relationships are a part of that capacity. Science gives us no answer as to why we're such relationally driven creatures, but the Bible does because our God is relational. And the primary way that the Creator seeks to form relationships, first of all, with us, with angels as well, but with us, is by the use of words. He takes words and He's given us the capacity to understand and make meaning from words. Have you ever thought about words, what, what, what they really are? I, I mean, it's just a sound. It's like, okay, um, I call these, or, if, or let's play this together. What would you call these? Some of you are not sure. You guys want to take a better look? <laughs> Try one more time. Glasses, okay. But why aren't they a hippopotamus? I'm going to put my hippopotamus on so that I can see better. I mean, who decided that the sound that comes out of my mouth, I make this sound, glasses, and you all know what it means, why couldn't it just as easy have been hippopotamus? Who decides this stuff? The closest we come, by the way, to having any idea as to who determines what anything is is back in the Garden of Eden. It says that God at one point brought all the animal kingdom before Adam, and it's kind of a funny passage. It's almost like you can picture God sitting back just watching with a smile, and it says, whatever Adam called the animals, that's what they were. So, just his imagination, he makes these sounds, and that's what these sounds become, and we all know the sound, and we derive meaning from it. God's primary way, his primary way of building relationships with his free-willed, image-bearing creatures, talking about humans and angels, his primary way is by the use of words. He talks to us. He's given us the capacity to understand the meaning of words. He allows us to consider how much meaning and impact these words are going to have over our life. And by means of words, he seeks to have a relationship with us. And he's a relational being and he delights in communicating with us. And he wants to have, let me rephrase that, he has absolutely intends to have and will have, promises to have, the eternal future full of relational beings just like himself, beings that, that love one another, that are devoted to one another, that are devoted to what is right and to what is good, beings that utterly trust in the Creator and love learning his will, love doing his will, wouldn't dream of entering into anything that's not his will. That's the future. God has laid it out. That's what the future is going to be. It's going to be a beautiful, relationally connected world. And the training, it's meant to start right here in this present rough and tumble, not so easy world. It's a great training ground for learning how to communicate to connect. And like we said before, communicating is one thing, connecting is another. There was a second quote that I don't think I went into, 
by uh, Daniel Coleman, and he summarized it this way. He says, the most fundamental revelation of the discipline of neurobiology is that we are wired to what? We're wired to connect. He says, neuroscience has discovered that our brain's very design makes it sociable, inexorably drawn into intimate, notice that word, intimate, brain-to-brain link-up whenever we engage with another person. So we're wired, we're designed by a relational creator to connect. And communication is the primary way that we're meant to connect. Scrabble. We're meant to take our most valuable words, present them so that we can connect to others with the hope that they will then present their most valuable words and connect yet again with us. So connection, relational connection It's the design that God has for us uh, in this life, but it's also a crucial determining factor how happy you and I will be as human beings, how successful we will be as human beings, how effective we will be as human beings. It doesn't matter how bright we are. It doesn't matter how talented we are. It doesn't matter how wealthy or popular we are. If our communication skills, if our connection skills are poor, We will be miserable beings and we'll usually bring a lot of misery to those around us. Now, what I want to do is spend some time. I I want to share with you the very longest conversation that Jesus has with anyone in Scripture. He has about 50 conversations with people. Some he initiated, some they initiated, some other people initiated, and he gets dragged into it. But there's one, there's one that he initiates. It is the longest recorded conversation. Therefore, It seems like God certainly wants to draw a lot of attention to it. I want us to walk through this conversation. You know, we'll have to go kind of fast because it's a lot of verses. I'll pause along the way just to illuminate it a bit uh, so that you won't miss the significance of certain things. But let's look at this conversation. It's Jesus with a woman. And if you don't mind turning to the Gospel of John chapter 4, and it'll be page 1201. The Gospel of John chapter 4, and we'll actually start... In verse 4, and again, you know, bear with me. I'll give you a little bit of an explanation of things as we go. John chapter 4, and, and do follow this because Jesus is giving us a model, a powerful, powerful model of taking our most valuable words to connect with others so that they can take their most valuable words and connect back with us. It, it's a great model of this thing that God wants us to learn in this life. Okay, here we go. John 4, beginning in verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, it says, But he had to pass through Samaria. Now he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat right down beside the well And it was about noon. So Middle East, you know, this is going to be a very hot time of day. Verse 7. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. For his disciples had gone into town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Now, Bear with me. Let me give you a little historical context. Samaria, uh, the territory, took up what we would call the, the ten northern tribes of Israel. Uh, Israel was originally 
12 tribes or what we might uh, you know, affiliate with 12 states. Like, like we have states in our country, they had 12 states. The 10 northern states were loosely called Samaria. The two southern were called Judah or Israel. And in 722 B.C., after a lot of warnings about their dabbling with uh, idolatry and all sorts of terrible behavior that didn't reveal God to the nations the way they were meant to. He warned them and warned them, and finally he let them be overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now, the Assyrian Empire had a, had a habit. When they would overwhelm a nation, they would take most of the inhabitants of that nation out of the nation caused them to live in other foreign nations, which kept them kind of disoriented and easy to control. They would take some of the other conquered peoples and put them back in the land they had conquered. So in 722 B.C., this is what happened in Israel. The ten northern tribes, they're dispersed. A few uh, Israelites are left behind. And then multitudes of people from all over the other conquered lands are put back in Samaria. Now, after a short period of time... They started having some difficulty with some wildlife there. I'll let you read it on your own. It's in 2 Kings chapter 17 sometime. But they decide, hey, we, we've got to do something to appease the God of this land. It was a very superstitious approach. And so they bring back one Jewish priest, and he starts trying to teach these, these pagan people about the God of Israel. And so they, they create this, this religion that's a combination of lots of different pagan worship and practices in and some worship practices of the true God. Because of this, the Samaritans, the ten northern tribes, became despised by the pure Jews of the two southern tribes. On top of this, they, they built a temple. Uh, the, these, these northern tribes, these Samaritans, they built their own worship temple. There was only one true temple. That was the temple in Jerusalem that God himself said they were to build, but they built this temple on the Mount Gerizim, and about 126 B.C. it was destroyed, but still there was this battle. So, so here's the picture. I'll, I'll try to shorten this up. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They, they considered them mongrels, despised mongrels. It was racial, racial prejudice at an intense level, but it was more than that. It was political prejudice. It was religious prejudice. This was real despisal. They didn't, they didn't want to touch anything that a Samaritan touched. They wouldn't converse with a Samaritan. And on top of this, Jesus is a Jewish male and known to be a rabbinic figure, a rabbi, a teacher, but just being a Jewish male, for him to talk to a woman, period, was unheard of. Jewish males in biblical setting, if they saw a woman in the street, they, they would kind of turn their head down. They, they would not speak to a woman in public. And so Jesus is kind of breaking all the rules in this thing. He's talking to a woman. He initiates the conversation. And he's talking to a despised Samaritan who any good Jew would try to avoid for fear of contamination. So hopefully this illuminates this thing a little bit better. Now let's dig back into the text. So let's pick back up uh, in verse 7. Well, I'm sorry, verse 9. So the woman said to him, how can you a Jew ask me a Samaritan woman for water to drink? For Jews use nothing in common with the Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you had known the gift of God and who it is who said to you, Give me some water to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said to him, You have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? 
Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself along with his sons and livestock. Jesus replied, Everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give you will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty again or have to come here to draw water. Pause for a minute. Now, so far, the woman is still thinking in very physical terms. This term living water was a common term used in biblical days. It just meant water that was free-flowing. And she's talking, you know, thinking living water. But Jesus is referring back to, to Jeremiah chapter 2, where it says that, that the Israelites had forsaken the Lord himself, who was the fountain of living water. Jesus is trying to help this lady to start thinking about what is more important in life than just getting a convenient drink of water. Listen, sometimes we encounter people and we have the challenge. How, because we care about them, how can we converse with them? How can we communicate with them? How can we connect with them so that we can get them to care about things that they don't really care about now? Particularly when it comes to spiritual things. How many of you have someone in your life, they're a neat person, they're a nice person, they're likable, you may love them, they may be a family member, they may be a friend, a worker, but you have some people in your life and, and they're, they're like cool people. But the truth be told, they really don't care about God, about Christ, or about spiritual things. How many got people like that in your life? Let me see your hands. Yeah. And, and, and so we have this uncomfortable thing. We, we don't want to disrupt the friendship. We don't want to disrupt the relationship. But if we care about them, it's always kind of looming in the back of our head. How can I get this person to care about the one that is the most important thing that anybody can care about? How, how can I get them to care about what they don't care about without disrupting the relationship? And so Jesus is giving a model of this. The woman's thinking about water, and, and he's introducing spiritual things. Now, I'm not saying that we can spend a whole huge amount of time in, in running with this, but let's, let's kind of tag into a few other things. There was a lot of unusual stuff happening here. First of all, the woman coming in the middle of the day, noon, the hot part of the day, to this well, unusual. Normally, people would have gathered early in the morning or toward dusk where, when it was cooler. We're going to see in a minute why she was probably there, because she wanted to be alone. She wanted to come get the water, be undiscovered, have no communication with anybody, and go their way. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever been, have you ever been in a situation or in a conversation that you were already uncomfortable you were, you were already uncomfortable. You didn't, you didn't feel exactly safe with the person. You weren't exactly sure they approved of you or liked you. And the conversation was moving around and you were afraid it was going to move around towards something that would make you feel even more uncomfortable. You, you were trying to avoid the conversation landing on a certain subject. And you were kind of, you were just wanting to get out of this conversation if you could. How many have ever been in that situation? Okay. That's this lady. She's trying to avoid 
connection with people because she wants to avoid conversation that she thinks is going to bring discomfort to her. So Jesus starts talking to her about living water. He says, listen, I want to give you something. First of all, he asks her for a favor. He, he breaks the ice. He shocks her by talking to her. He tears down the bridge. She knows he's a Jew. And she's looking in his eyes. And we don't know what the look was. And she's hearing the tone of his voice. And we don't know what it is. But I can tell you by her response, she was blown away and shocked by the acceptance, the warmth, the interest, the respect that this Jew had for her. She, she had nothing to relate it to, nothing in society of her day would open to her, open her to even understand it. And then on top of it, this Jew wants to give her something. You know, she's talking about just regular drinking water. He said, but I, I want to give you some water that you'll never thirst again. And, and she's like, yeah, I'm not sure what you're talking about. He's trying to relate her mind back to Jeremiah because she does have some biblical uh, understanding being a Samaritan. She would have. But he's moving this conversation. He's trying to get her to care about something that she doesn't care about, that maybe she's given up on, that maybe she thinks is not really important to her life, but Jesus knows it is. Listen, you have people in your life that they flatly don't think it matters. They don't think it matters at all if they trust Christ and are following him. They think it, it's like, hey, man, everybody's got their religious thing. You just do whatever you want. You have religion. You worship what you want. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a Hindu. Be a Christian. Be a Muslim. It doesn't matter. Or have no religion at all. Most human beings that you and I meet, they don't think it really matters. It's trivial. Why talk about it at all, they feel? But if you believe what Jesus says, if you believe what this book reveals, the most crucial relationship in any human being's life is their relationship with Christ, their creator. Let me go further. If you believe what this book says and what Jesus himself says, if a human being goes through this life, succeeds in everything they can succeed in, gains the whole world. Remember, Jesus said, what if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own what? Soul. People can seem to succeed, but if they never in this life have any desire to know their creator, they have no, no desire to examine the revelation that he has comprehensively given of himself. This, this is really, really a bad depiction of what is going on in their soul. It is not a small thing when someone just is blasé about their relationship with their creator. Oh, well, you know, it's good for you, but I can take it or leave it. That's not a good thing. You say, but Randy, they never do anything really bad. They don't hurt anybody. But it's their heart why wouldn't they want to know the truth about their creator? Why wouldn't they want to rise to a higher level of good if that good exists and has revealed itself? Why would they have no interest when almost anyone knows that Jesus is at the very least the most wonderful human being that ever lived, if not God, which he clearly was. So he's trying to get this lady to care about her relationship with her creator. Now, the conversation is going to take a very abrupt turn. And this particular portion of scripture, I think, has been more misunderstood and misapplied than almost anyone that I've ever heard of. Let, let's look at it. So, he's trying to get her to desire this living water. And the woman in verse 15 says she wants it. And then in verse 16, he said to her, Go call your husband. And come back here. 
So in other words, I'll tell you about the living water that's going to be like a fountain of eternal life inside you. But, but, but go call your husband. You know, I want to let him on in this too. Jesus said to her, write you, excuse me. The, the woman replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, right you are when you said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the man you are living with now is not your husband. This you said truthfully. Now, most commentators, when they read this portion of Scripture, they say, well, that's where Jesus was bringing in conviction of sin. You've got to have that conviction of sin. Because if you don't care about being judged by God for your sin, you're not going to desire to escape hell and be forgiven. And that is just the worst unbiblical nonsense I've ever heard. Let, let, me, let me share with you what I believe with all my heart what Jesus was doing here. The woman's at the well midday because this is a woman who lives with constant shame. She feels rejected of God, rejected of humankind. I don't know why she had five divorces. In those days, it could have been five men that just simply said, I no longer want to be your husband. They based it on a, a, a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24. If a woman burnt a meal or if she just didn't look so hot anymore, the guy could just dump her. It was very hard for a woman to divorce a man, but a man could divorce a woman in those days for any reason. So I don't know what her five divorces were about. I don't know if she was immoral. I don't know if she was an adulteress or whether she was just rejected five times over by these brutal men. And now she's living with somebody that's not even her husband. Listen, this woman's there at midday because she is ashamed. She is riddled with guilt and shame. And she feels rejected of God. If anybody felt like God would never want anything to do with her, that she was eternally condemned, it's this woman. So why would Jesus bring up the very thing that she is trying to avoid the most? The thing that's going to make her feel the most uncomfortable of anything that he could ever bring up. Because he wants her to know, I know who you are. I've always known who you are. I knew at the beginning of the conversation who you are. And I initiated the conversation with you. And it's you, it's you with all your history, with all your shame, with all your inexcusable behavior, with all your errors, with all your regrets. It's you, it's you that I'm offering this living water to. I want to give you something. I see you. I know you. You matter to me. You are not a reject. Far from it. I'm going to talk with you more and have it recorded in my book than anyone else in Scripture. Far from it being bringing conviction, it's bringing relief that this woman could finally breathe and understand that even I, with all that I've been through, with, with all that labels me a reject, this one... This one does not see me that way. I would have loved to see Jesus' eyes. I would have loved to have heard the tone of his voice. I guarantee you it was full of warmth. It was full of probably even some humor at times. And this woman was picking up on all of it. Let's go further. The woman in verse 19 said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. She understood now that he's talking in spiritual terms and he knows things. He has knowledge that no one could have. Uh, it's interesting to contemplate. This might have been an abbreviated form of the conversation when Jesus said, you've had five husbands. He might have even said something like, 
You know, you first met Joshua when you were just a young woman, but then after two years, he dumped you. And then you met Nahab, and you, and I mean, he might have been great in great detail. We just don't know, because it's interesting. Later, she'll say, <coughs> he told me everything that I had ever done. Well, let me, let me run quickly, because I'm, I'm getting too hung up here. <laughs> she says, our, fa- our fathers worshipped on this mountain, <clears throat> And you people say that the place uh, people must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know, meaning the Samaritans. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. This is important. Jesus was saying the revelation, the progressive revelation that God's given, it was given to the Jewish nation. The Samaritan tribes and their former religion was incorrect. Jesus was making that very clear to her. But he says, but a time is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is a spirit, and people who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ or Messiah. Whenever he comes, he'll tell us everything. And this is most remarkable. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He never says this this clearly again until the very end of his ministry. Jesus said to, him, said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus reveals to this woman, this outcast, this one who would have been thought beyond redemption, that he is the Messiah. Now, it's interesting, he says that the time is coming where God's going to gather people that worship him in spirit and truth. And I've seen this thing interpreted in all kinds of weird ways. Let, let me just unpack this for you. It means people that once they see what God is like, they like him. And they are attracted to him. If you are not attracted to God, if you only want to get forgiveness of your sins and assurance of heaven, but you really don't like God, you really don't like his will, you don't like his word, you don't like his ways, you're deceived. You're not, you're not saved. You're not going to go to heaven. You'd be a misfit in heaven. You'd be miserable in heaven. Worshiping God in spirit and truth, it's those that when they see what God is like in his revelation, they like him. They like his kingdom. They want his will. They're drawn to him. And therefore, they gladly put their trust in him and become his followers. Jesus says, that's who the Father's looking for, worshipers. And he's telling this woman, he's saying, you know, he's looking for you. You're not excluded. He, he wants you. Come on, he wants to give you the, the eternal life giving water. The conversation goes on. Verse 27. Now at that very moment his disciples came back. They were shocked because he was speaking with a woman. However, no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? So they left the town and begin coming to him. Now, I want to read you the way this verse sounds in another version, the ISV version. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? She's just had Jesus tell her, I'm the Messiah, and she's face to face with the Messiah who likes her, who didn't condemn her, who was interested in her, 
who wanted to connect with her, who used his very best words to connect with her and drew out the best words out of her. She was somebody that was spiritually minded. She just felt too doggone condemned to do much about it until she came to Jesus. Goes on and says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. He goes on to tell them, I have, I have food to eat that you don't know about. It's doing the Father's will. Let me pick up real quick in verse 39. Now, many Samaritans from the town believed in him, meaning Jesus, because of the report of the woman who testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they began asking him to stay with them. He stayed there two days, and because of his words, many more believed or trusted in him. They said to the woman, no longer do we believe because of your words, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this one really is the Savior of the world. So here's this beautiful model of communicating to connect. Now, I'm going to go super, super quick through, through our points on our outline. What does it mean to be a better Scrabble player, communicating to connect? First of all, we have to patiently find the most valuable words to communicate with others. It's the difference between just spewing out whatever stream of thought goes through our mind and patiently finding the most valuable words to give to others. The book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 21. It says, what the righteous person says does what? Nourishes. It, it, it gives life to others. Nourishes many. Proverbs 16, 23, it says, wise people always do what? They think before what? Before they speak. How many would just own up to it? I don't always think before I speak. Can I see your hands? <laughs> so we can all improve on that. God's equipped us to learn how to do that. Wise people always think before they speak. So what they say is what? Worth listening to. It's valuable. It's worth listening to. Jesus chose his words carefully. He wanted to connect with this lady. He wanted to let her know God, who he was, wanted to connect with her. You're going to meet people all your life. And every person you meet, listen to me carefully, every person you meet is scared. I don't care how bold or courageous they may seem. They're scared. They're insecure to some degree or another. They struggle with feelings of inferiority to some degree or another. They aren't sure that they're adequate on some level or another. They aren't sure that they're really lovable. If somebody knew who they really were and everything about them, you're going to meet broken, scared people, everybody you meet, no matter how adequate and sharp they may seem. Speak to their fears. Communicate warmth to them. Communicate acceptance. Communicate that you believe in who God can enable them to be. Speak, if you can, to alleviate their feelings of guilt and shame and self-loathing. And believe me, every human's got some. In fact, some humans have so much of it that they put up such a facade and they do so many things to try to block out the feelings that it's hard to get through. It's hard to get them to be authentic once again. You have to do things to relieve their fears. Choice of right words can help in this regard. Came across something interesting about Jerry Seinfeld. How many of you like the Seinfeld comedy? I mean, I know maybe not all of you, but matter of fact, he just did a new stand-up, 
and he goes back to his old comedy club and he talks about his history. It's wonderful. It's clean. It's hilarious. He's just as funny as he ever was. But he talks about his process. At one point, uh, actually, if I could go back to the picture, I'm sorry. At one point in the stand-up that he does, they show this picture of an entire street that they blocked off. And the whole street is covered with those papers. And these are like thousands and thousands of notes that he's written through the years to make jokes and refine jokes. Now, if we can go to the slide. If he makes people laugh, it's because every word is chosen carefully and the timing of his delivery has been honed and practiced with rigorous discipline. Goes on. I don't want people to know how much work I put into it. I just think it's more fun when it seems off the cuff. The editing process takes time, focus, diligence. Seinfeld added, you're always trying to trim everything down to absolute rock, solid rock. I will sit there for 15 minutes to make it one syllable shorter. You say, Randy, why do you, why do you bring Seinfeld and his process of comedy development into this? Because if he does this to make people laugh, why won't we work a little bit to choose more valuable words to think before we speak so that we can connect with people? Some of us talk a lot but we don't connect very well. And if we just look at our history, painful as it might be, we could see we do a lot of talking, but not many people really want to connect with us. There's a reason for that. I'm going to tell you, people are drawn to safe people. People are drawn to warm, loving people. People are drawn to people that believe in others and encourage others and want to bless others and want to give to others and want to speak to alleviate people's fears. People connect with people like that. And it's our words, and it's our tone, and it's our eyes even sometimes that bring that path into play. So Proverbs 12, 18 adds this. It says, speaking recklessly is like the thrust of a sword, but the words of the wise bring what? Healing. Healing. You have that power. Here's the deal. This communication to connect gifting that God has given to you it is an extraordinary power. You can infuse encouragement and life in others. Listen, people can be going down a path that you know leads to destruction. It's going to destroy them. It's going to destroy their family, their career, their, their health, their wealth. You can speak to them in the right way and turn that around. And maybe you've already done that. Maybe there's some people that are, that are going to be ever thankful because you spoke to them you spoke respectfully, you spoke tenderly, carefully, but you told the truth and you drew them toward Christ and you moved them toward his path of life. That's a power that God has entrusted to us. You can change a person's life with your words. You can also rip a person's heart out with your words. It's all just how we're going to use them. So patiently finding the most valuable words, the second part of Scrabble, a good Scrabble player is intentionally connecting with the most valuable words of others. Proverbs 21, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 15, 28. It says, the heart of the righteous thinks carefully, here we have it again, how to answer in a wise and appropriate and timely way. I love that three uh, editions of the Amplified Version. Responding to people wisely, appropriately, and in a timely way. We see Jesus doing that. He never treats this woman disrespectfully. He does everything he can to keep offering himself the ultimate gift to her. And he changes her life. A woman who initially was hiding out. She comes to the well midday because she doesn't want to meet anybody. She feels shame everywhere she goes. Every day of her life she feels ashamed and she feels rejected. And she feels hopeless. 
And all of a sudden, after talking with Jesus, she runs back to the crowd of people that she was afraid to face before. And she's confident and she's confident she has something great to give them now. She says, you've you got to meet this guy. He told me everything about myself. Could he, could he be the Messiah? I mean, he, she knew he said that he was the Messiah. She's confident now. She's not living with the guilt and the shame crippling her. It has, it has, she has been stripped of all the fear that was crippling her. And now she wants to give to somebody else. She knows she has something to give. If you are a follower of Christ, you have something to give. And it's Jesus. And it can come in all kinds of ways through conversations with people that you connect with them on a deep level. And ultimately it opens up an invitation of some sort. So the tone of our truth telling it also matters too. I came across a story about a, a couple, their name is Ed and Barbara Waltz, and they have a daughter named Debbie, and she's got cerebral palsy. And they talk about their experience in taking her into a doctor. They were still hoping that she might someday walk. And I'm actually going to read you what their experience was with one doctor. Uh, they um, received the test back, and in a tone that was cold and emotionally disconnected from his patient, the doctor said, it's extremely unlikely that your daughter will ever walk. Still in a state of shock from the devastating news, Barb asked, what kind of shoes should I buy for my daughter? She was thinking about some corrective shoes or perhaps shoes connected to a brace. Without softening the blow, the doctor reported or retorted, buy her whatever kind of shoes you want. She won't be using them to walk in. And with that, he quickly left the room. Barb burst out into tears. Several months later, they decided to go to another doctor, a different opinion. Ask the same question. What kind of shoes should we get for my daughter? Still hoping that maybe her daughter would someday take a few steps. The doctor paused for a moment thinking. Then he looked compassionately and directly into Barb's eyes and said, You know what I'd do if I were you, Miss Waltz? I'd buy my daughter the prettiest little pink shoes I could find with purple shoelaces. And Barb knew what he meant. The daughter was never going to walk. But they said that we talked about our experience on the way home. Both doctors had told us the same thing. Deb would never walk. I'm ashamed to say what we felt like doing to the first doctor. But we felt like hugging the second dollar doctor. How we tell the truth makes a difference in how truth is received. So it's about body language. I wish we could have seen Jesus' eyes. I wish we could have heard the tone of his voice. But I guarantee you this conversation would not have continued had there not been warmth, great warmth, and great acceptance communicated through that media. Proverbs 10.32, it says, The righteous people know the what thing to say? The kind thing to say. Valuable words that connect are kind words. Proverbs 15.23, it says, Give the right answer at the right time, or giving the right answer at the right time, makes everyone happy. You feel great. And the people around you feel great. The right answer at the right time. Timing is a critical component of this too. I want to close with a, a little bit of a different uh, unusual emphasis in something. Uh, there's a lady named Sherry Turkle, and she's kind of a communication expert for the New York Times. And she has some really interesting things to say about some patterns developing in our day. In a recent 2015 article in the New York Times, um, she says, What has happened to face-to-face -to -face conversation? In a world where so many people say they would rather text than talk. Pause for a minute before you go to the next slide. I want to say something. Isn't it ironic that everyone has a phone today? Nearly little six-year-old kids have phones. They're packing phones. 
but hardly anybody talks on a phone anymore. I mean, the original, the original purpose of a phone was you had conversations with people, real conversations. You spoke words and you heard their words. Now everybody's packing a phone and nobody's talking at all for the most part. That's ironic. She goes on. In 2010, in 2010, a team of the University of Michigan led by psychologist Sarah Conrath put together the findings of 72 studies that were conducted over a 30-year period. This is pretty comprehensive. They found a 40% decline in empathy, the ability, to, the ability to feel what others feel. A decline in empathy among college students with the most decline taking place after 2000. Why 2000? That's when the cell phone boom really hit. And everyone started packing a cell phone. Look, a decline in empathy. Wait a minute. This is saying that college students are losing something that is a key component of humanity, a key component of com community. I can't connect with people if I can't have some sense of feeling what they feel. And something is happening. So that a 40% decline in the ability to connect with others on the level of feeling is occurring amongst young people. She goes on. The trouble with talk begins young. Students were not developing friendships the way, the way they used to, which was by face-to-face -face talking. One teacher observed that students sit in the dining hall and look at their what? How many of you have been to restaurants and you see people, all a family, all looking down at their phones? Can I just say something that's going to be offensive to some of you? It makes me sick. It makes me sick. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. <laughs> Folks, we've got to see there's something wrong with this. You say, but everybody's doing it, Randy. It's a new day. I don't care. It's not normal. It's not healthy. It is dangerous. I'm going, I'm going to make that point in a minute. One teacher observed the students sit in the dining hall and they, they look at their phones. When they share these things together, what they are sharing is what is on their phones. They're not talking and conversing. They're not connecting. They're just showing pictures to each other for the most part. Is this the new conversation? If so, it is not doing the work of the old conversation. The old conversation taught what? Empathy. These students seem to understand each other less. Now, I'm going to just, just say, this is my, my plea for this. You may or may not believe what I'm about to say, but I, you'll live to see it's true. You and I are the generation. We are the last generation. We are living in the time in human history when this Messiah is about to re-enter once again. And he has clearly warned us in his word that the greatest deception that human beings have ever experienced is about to be unleashed on our planet. You will experience it, no doubt. And at such a time as this, technology is literally rewiring our brains. They have done studies now to know that the use of technology to the degree that we are, people that are addicted to technology, addicted to phones, it is changing the neural pathways in our brains. It is affecting our ability to be fully human and fully alive. We don't have empathy anymore. We don't know how to connect anymore. We don't know how to converse. We are, we are living in a counterfeit. We think that we stay connected with people all the time because we're shooting pictures and little things back and forth. All we're doing is vomiting out stuff about ourselves. I'm going to take a selfie and send it to you. Aren't you lucky? <laughs> that's, not, that's not communicating to connect. 
It is a counterfeit that gives a synthetic shallow connection, but it is not what we were built for. We were built to have intimacy first with our creator, which gives us the freedom and the capacity to then lovingly, caringly communicate and connect with others for their good. Don't waste this gift. Don't let it deteriorate. Don't let technology steal it from you. Don't let it rewire your soul. I'm not saying don't use technology. I'm, I'm just saying be careful, be wise, because we are. Mark my words. Call me crazy if you want. We are the generation that's going to see the things that Scripture talks about called the last days. And the technology is a part of it. So, my plea is that you would want to become a really good Scrabble player. Because <laughs> good Scrabble players, they take their words, and they try to present them to people in the most valuable form. And valuable words are words that encourage people and draw them to their creator and build people up and give them hope, speak to people's fears and help them feel accepted and loved, that they still have potential, they still can have life. That, that's the valuable words. And you do that to connect with them. I want to build an authentic relationship with them, a caring relationship. I'm not here to take from them, I'm here to give to them. And then I want to hopefully let them connect back to me and, and we're just going to develop and grow together. I hope every single one of you wants to be a good Scrabble player. I know I need to be a better Scrabble player myself. I, I mean, I've been working on it a lot of years and I still have so much to do, so much to grow. I still really blow it a lot of times with communications. So let's just ask ourselves a few questions. Is there any of us that could not say to our creator this day, Lord, help me to communicate better and to connect better with people for your sake, for your purposes. I think all of us can agree that that's something we need to ask God to help us to do. Second part, what kind of steps can we take so that we say the right thing at the right time with, with the appropriate voice tonality and, and eye contact? And, and, and how can we stop uh, living in a texting world and start talking again, authentically, uh, making the time for the sake again of Christ and his kingdom. Um, and maybe there's somebody here that, that you've never connected with Christ, your creator. You saw what he's like. There's nothing you've done or ever will do that will shock him. He wants you. He loves you. You were made by him and for him. He only wants to be able to bless you, but he can't bless you. He can't give you what he wants to give unless you will put your trust in him and become his follower. That's how the blessing gets unleashed in us. That's how we can become who he always meant us to become. So if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, your trust in him, never became his follower, just like he was seeking that woman then, he's seeking you now. And I urge you to do what, what many of us in here have done, what I did back when I was 23. Make your decision today that you're going to put your trust in Christ and connect with him forevermore as his faithful follower. Let, let's pray. Father, we pray that this gift you've given to us, this, this ability to communicate, to connect, that we will cherish it, we will hone it, we will develop it for your honor, for your good. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.